0: that's what sexual assault is about power and control if i can if i can overpower you you won't think that what's happening to you is wrong hi everybody
1: welcome to another episode of fuck fear thank you so much for joining us today as we continue through these we are now in season three if you've missed any of the other episodes be sure to go back and listen to season one and two today we are talking about fear of reporting sexual assault I am very interested in this topic. The Me Too movement is still moving and I think more women are um, finding their bravery to to report sexual assault, but we're talking about all of it today. And my guest, I am so excited to welcome to uh, the podcast today is Yolanda McCarty Harris. She is uh, at the University of Texas at Austin. She is the Director of Mission Critical Initiatives in the Institute for Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault at the Steve Hicks School of Social Work at the University of Texas at Austin. She is in the process of pursuing her EDD. She is a, has her a a Juris Doctorate, and she's also a lawyer, and she does work and research around this topic. So I am so excited to welcome her today. Hello, Yolanda. I am so happy to see you, and thank you for being with us today.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I am honored. I've been watching you from afar. From oh Australia. girl. So I am um excited to be on your show. Well thank you. About such a critical, critical uh issue. Yes. That's happening, uh not only in our country, in our state, uh, but more importantly as it relates to my research on college campuses.
1: Yes, yes. So, you know, I start each episode with asking my guests one question, which is, what is your greatest fear?
0: Oh, wow. You know, um, I used to. I used to have a fear of not succeeding, Mm. of, of not being this Black woman that was just had it all. That could do it all. Yeah. That could be this superwoman that we talk about. Uh, that could be this black strong woman uh, stereotype that's out there. Um, I wanted to to just be that person. I used to look at Oprah. I used to look at uh, all successful black women, and you know our, our first lady. Michelle Obama, I you know I looked at them and I was like, wow, I would love to be one of those women that's just strong and graceful, and um, just could be that mother that I am, that could be that wife that I am, that could be that successful woman in terms of my my career, and then. At the same time, I wanted to be that Christian woman. Mm-hmm. And I think um, what I've learned in the last two years is that I had it twisted. I had it. I had my priorities back word. And what I would do is I thought that I could be that successful woman. Mm-hmm. And then when I got weak, then I started God, like, God, I need you now. How can you help me? And I just needed him to have my back. So over the last two years, I've switched it. God is my front. And I align with success looks like for him because he's always, has already determined my purpose. And my purpose is in him and to be the glory of him. And so whatever I do, so no longer am I concerned about hey, am I gonna be at the, 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 na- the next elite social event coming up? Am I gonna be in the room? Am I gonna rock the room? I'm gonna walk through the room because I could work a room like nobody else could work a room. Mm-hmm. And I thought that, that you needed to rub shoulders with those individuals. And I thought you needed to rub shoulders even within your own work at UT Austin. And, uh, but those things are not important to me anymore. I'm not going to say they're not important. I'm going to say they're not my priority. Right. So my fear was that I would not be successful. Mm. What does that look like? Girl, you don't went to school. How many years you been going to school? <laughs> <laughs> you got a JD. And people, were, and people were like, wait a minute. Weren't you, weren't you a lawyer? And I was, I'll be like, yeah. And they were like, now, what's that other thing you're getting? Uh, why are you getting that? And yeah. I'm going to look at this story. I had someone tell me, and if that person happens to see this show, he'll know who he, whom I'm talking about. And he told me, why are you wasting your time getting that doctorate, the other doctorate? And I was like, well, wait a minute, you got a doctorate. Mm-hmm. But I did not graduate from Southern Methodist Law School either. Why are you not basically pursuing your career in law. You are, you are bright. You're intelligent. Why are you not doing that? And I'm mm-hmm. like, really? Yeah. You that? I mean, let me be me. If that's what I feel I need to move to the next level, let me. Wow. me. And so, um, <clears throat> I am, um, yeah, that was my, that's my greatest fear. Wow. And, I tell you what else, um, imposter syndrome, and I know you've talked about. Yeah, that. yeah. But I just recently read an article. Brene Brown did a podcast on it that says we need to get that imposter syndrome out of our vocabulary.
1: Seriously,
0: that is a made-up patriarchal word <laughs> that's basically being used to keep women in their place. Yeah. And yeah. feel like they don't belong in their place. And right. say, um I'm good.
1: I, well,
0: I am good now. That was I my- hope
1: you yes, and I hope you realize you are a badass. So I'm reading through your like five-page resume <laughs> <laughs> and listening to you speak about your greatest fear. I'm like, those two things don't go together, but I but I understand I it. I understand it because. I, I understand it. Yep. So don't yep. you ever doubt that you are not successful and that you haven't been. You are successful every morning you wake up. Okay. Mm-hmm. So yes, girl, girl, I'm here I to tell you every morning around that now. Definitely. Yes. Thank you. Absolutely. Breath Breath or or I'm trying to keep up with you. <laughs> Breathe in and okay. into
0: me. Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, yes.
1: Okay. So let's get into the topic that uh, we are discussing today. And it's fear of um, fear of reporting sexual assault. Yeah, I'm very interested in this because I think in the last, I don't know, five years or so, we have seen more women coming forward than we have previously. And and maybe five years is not enough, I guess, in the last 10 years or so. Uh, And Yeah, you know, I look. You know, I, I like to really talk about ways that women and people in general have been more brave and finding their bravery and been more yes. courageous in whatever way it is. And this topic, I, I think we have seen a lot more of uh, people speaking out. Most recently, the tennis player um, Peng Sui, uh, Sui, and, um, and and so many women. And so, because you yes. do work around this topic. I really wanted to talk to you about the the area that you research and the work that you do on the Steve Hicks School. So talk to me a little bit about what you uh, what you focus on and and why and and why your focus area and research area is important to you.
0: Well, you know, um, I think it's a blessing where I'm at now um, in the Institute for Domestic Violence and um, Sexual Assault. Um, I have met Noel Bush who is our our director of our institute, um, who's talking about being a badass, I think she's a badass, Mm -hmm. white woman, put it that way. And um, I had met her when she was over in the, uh, as a VP, associate VP in research, and I was working within uh, the Office of Inclusion and Equity doing compliance work, Uh, not only looking at Title IX issues, which is sexual assault on college campuses, um, and violence, but uh, also looking at all the other forms of discrimination. But I was on a task force with her. And so um, when she tapped me and said, hey, I want you on my team. And the reason why my my position is called the Director of Mission Critical Initiatives is because I was hired to bring the equity, diversity, inclusion lens to our research. In fact, um, We were able to. I developed a uh, conceptual framework that not only included the traditional forms of inclusion, diversity, and equity, but I added belonging. And you hear a lot of belonging Mm -hmm. being. And we call that framework BIDE. And the BIDE is basically to go into the research and says, really, who's always who's missing from this research? So when you're studying sexual violence, you're talking about sexual assault. What you See, happening is that the face of that, even though the Me Too movement was started by Toronto Burke, a black woman, the face of the Me Too woman, Me Too movement was a white woman. Mm-hmm. In fact, it was a, a actress Milana. What was her name? Milana. Well, I forget her name. Oh, Alyssa Milana.
1: Alyssa Milano.
0: Uh huh. Yeah. Was was when the Me Too hashtag hit his two, in two thousand and seventeen she was talking about me too they were like oh and then it wasn't until later that she says well wait a minute wait a minute i'm sorry tarana burke was the was the, was the one who coined me too mm-hmm. me give credit to her and so when i started studying within the IDVS which is looking at interpersonal violence and sexual violence not only as it relates to colleges but also in our state and I'm going to mention one of the studies, prevalent studies that was done in, in 2015, which talks about when you ask the question of unreported cases and why women don't disclose and where do they seek help over 76.8, well, 676.8 percent of them seek help from whom? Who do you think they seek help from?
1: Family, Family member,
0: friend. friend. That's it. Mm-hmm. And they do not disclose to law enforcement around these issues. And so uh, I thought it was very interesting. And so when I was doing my study at first, when I started my research, I was looking at the career career trajectory of black women and why they don't succeed in academia, what's missing. That's what I want to do. And it was really a self-study on me. Like, why am I not moving within this academia? I've been in academia since 2007, seven, Mm -hmm. 14, 15 years, yes.
1: So, when you say succeed, you're meaning moving up rather
0: than lateral. Yeah, I'm talking about, yeah, because I've been, I I started out as a director Mm -hmm. for my first institution, which was Youngstown State when we were staying in Ohio in 2007. I was a director. Now, depending on what institution and what president you serve, your role can be different when you're in those diversity, equity, inclusion roles. At that university, I reported to the president. But when I reflect back on it, I was so excited. I'm sitting around the table with vice presidents. I'm sitting around the table with the provost. I'm sitting. I'm sitting around the table with all the big players on campus. But never did I ask myself what money. What do I make compared to what they make? Mm-hmm. And I will tell you, I probably made seventy thousand dollars less. Wow. Around yeah. that table. Wow. And, but I was so excited, you know, you talk about women not being able to negotiate when they come into a different role. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. It was a it was a big jump from what I was making at my other job working at the city, when I was working at the city of Toledo. So I never asked any questions about the pay equity. I remember we did a furlough. Guess what? I did the same furlough that they were doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I remember them saying, well, of you really don't have to do it. And I was like, no, 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 I'm part of the team. I'll right. Take, I'll take a pay cut. I may not take as much as you take, but okay. I'm gonna pay to show my portion. And um, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm talking about. And I, and I forgot your question, Katina, on this issue regarding how did I get into this work? But anyway, I got into this work over there with with, with Noal studying what they were doing. And so I said, "Well, if I'm going to be studying about sexual assault, why don't I switch my research interest? I know my research interest is around marginalized populations." Mm-hmm. I flipped it and said, "Oh, I'll do a study on. Let me look and do a literature review, and I found out that there is very little research around Black women in sexual violence. Mm. And why is that? And I wanted to look at Black women in sexual violence on predominantly white institutions." because one of the things that I wanted to study was the intersectionality of these oppressions as around the race and gender aspects of things. Yeah. And if you're already feeling isolated and like you don't belong because they're the very sheer number of you on campus, what does it feel like when you're sexually assaulted? Right. You add another trauma to it. Is that trauma? different from what a trauma would look like for a white woman? Mm -hmm. Are we, and and have we set up our structures, the way we, our prevention efforts, the way we address it, the way we respond it, and the way that we ensure that it doesn't happen again? Are we structuring those things? Do our policies look like we're not taking into considering the differences that up with that trauma showing mm-hmm. up differently. What is it? Are they utilizing the services that are? And I'm gonna tell you in the little part of my research that I'm done, my research that I'm doing now, they're showing up differently. In what ways differently? Everything is different. For meaning the ones that I've interviewed, the question is, and you asked this question where do you go for support-seeking efforts? Mm-hmm. Now, we have said that it is across the board that mostly people go to friends and family. But what I'm showing is they're more likely to go to friends as opposed to possibly family because family can also be not of support. They may say, yeah. them, but, well, put it this way, because most Sexual assault on campus is interracial, meaning if a black woman is sexually assaulted, the the, the accuser is also black. Mm-hmm. And so there's a fear that if I share what has happened to me, this means that brother's going to go to jail mm-hmm. and we know what they do to our brothers in jail. Right. The family says, you don't need to put our business out like that. Mm. They may say, well, what did you do? I had a searcher says, wait a minute, let me get this straight. You and the guy were boyfriend, girlfriend. Yes, mama. And you were, um, you had consensual sex with him on numerous occasions. Yes, mama. But this time you said it wasn't consensual. No, mama. That don't make no sense. Mm. That doesn't make any sense. That it's no this time, and then her father says, said, well, I' you know, I got accused falsely, so I definitely don't support what's going on, which would happen to you. Um, I got falsely accused, and so, um, I'm not sure about your story, and yeah. you're like, this is your child, this right you. that right. What happened to them was not consensual, yeah you're saying it's your fault. Its her fault that she this happened to her?
1: Yeah.
0: I'm like this this is twisted. And so the question is they're not also seeking help at our counseling session at counseling. Now right. we'll give you some credit. Our counseling center has began to and have hired, more people of color on their staff to be able to address the issues that are happening on college campuses. Yeah. The question is, do our black girls use those
1: the services?
0: right. Are? And some have told me no, that they don't, they still don't feel comfortable because and- even if you go, probably, there may be a black person, but is that black person been socialized to respond In terms of their counseling from a white perspective, are they really, truly understanding my cultural identity that I'm bringing to the table?
1: Gotcha. Because there is a lot of shame around reporting because of what you mentioned, family embarrassment. So there's shame that she has to consider. There is the possibility that the perpetrator will be arrested and go to jail. And if he's Black, then...
0: I don't want to kick him out of school. I don't want to, you right. know, he's trying, he's trying, he's trying to get ahead of life just like I'm trying to get a life. Right. Why would I to them? Why would I do that? Yeah. Well, there is a lot. So my research is basically, and I'm telling you, I'm already getting some, 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 um some, some, some good support around this issue. That's good. Um, I just was on with UT systems doing a training around, um prevention and that particular person i, I, I probably can say her name krista i'm going to give you a shout out on <laughs> patricia anderson who used to be the title nine coordinator within her presentation she talked about intersectionality mm-hmm. i heard them talk about intersectionality and looking at the various identities that people bring into this this trauma that's going on and these experiences And she talked about it because it's all about power and control, right? Power and control happening. And you got all these other oppressions that are going on at the same time. How are you, how are you equipped to be able to deal with them? Can you deal with them? Because what you think that person may need may not be what they need. They may need to be some, they may need to come at a different way with this. Yeah. So if you tell them that that's reason why within sexual assault, they said, don't just have them report to police. I believe there's a reason why on college campus, there's an administrative side of looking at it that usually has a lower standard than looking at it from a criminal standpoint beyond a reasonable doubt.
1: Sure. There's a reason. It's, you know, it, listening to the, the reasons, I mean, it, um, it's very upsetting to know that There are so many things that women have to think about before they decide to be courageous and and report, which is so upsetting. And it obviously shouldn't be that way. But there are so it's not just the fear of reporting the sexual assault. It's all the other fears around it that they have to think about. Consider, ponder, and make a decision about. So it's like 10 fears that lead up to the one thing that they need to do for themselves. To get help. To get help. It reminds me, like listen to you, reminds me of this case. Um, around 2015 in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. I lived in I lived there for a very short time, long enough to realize I needed to get out of there. But it was a University of Alabama student. Uh she were she reported being sexually assaulted by someone who was a prominent figure in the town. This person was not a student, um, but their family uh, owned a huge construction company, Bun Construction in Tuscaloosa. So everybody knew who they were as one of the largest construction firms. And so she reported it. And then she reported also uh, feeling like she uh, was the perpetrator, like they were blaming her for what happened to her. Mm. And uh, it, it, it just it was a, it's a very sad story. She ended up committing yes. suicide and um, her parents, you know, sued the university or sued the uh, um, construction company. The grand jury. I think this is something that also led to th- her demise was the grand jury also decided that they would not indict him. And uh, so, you know, all of those things, I just imagine she was considering she just felt like she had no help. She also reported that she reported the incident to um, the, the same kind of office on campus uh, at U.A. And and the and the person who did the intake decided to recuse herself because she knew the perpetrator personally and knew their family oh, personally. Wow. So she felt so. The, so uh, Megan, the, the victim, felt like she couldn't get anywhere. And um, and sadly committed suicide. Because she was so of, yes. she, you know, she withdrew from school. She was so depressed. But it is just it's this is such an extraordinary topic because of all the fear that surrounds it. So it's like they are re-traumatized over and over and over again yes. after the after the assault right. has happened.
0: Yeah. And you know what's interesting, too? Um, we were doing another study. Uh, that I was on, and um, I'm not going to get too far on that because we haven't actually published it, but it is unpublished right now, but it was looking at the Title IX processes at UT Austin, which can be, just pick any type of school, looking at the processes, and I thought that, you know, during the period that we were looking at, we were looking at the period of 2015-2018, to and if anyone can relate to that, there was the Obama administration,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Trump administration. So you had all of these laws around addressing, which some people say, critics will say, that you went too far to the left, Obama, with your policies and there was a lot of changes that were going on responding. So now taking consideration, Trump comes into way, right? Mm -hmm. Then another wave of change. So these administrators, we're having to deal with all of these policy changes, not only going on at the federal level, but going on at the state level. The state of Texas was passing its own laws around Title IX, and then dealing with it on campus. But, but even though these administrators did were doing what they were supposed to do and responding, guess what the, the respondents and the people, the parties that were involved, they were saying. Well, not only were we being traumatized by all of these systems, we're being traumatized by you because you're making us go through all, jump through all these hoops. Yeah. Just tell me my story, right? Not, yeah. not let me tell my story. Set mm. up according to the state. Now, there's some interesting data around that, right? Did, did SB 212, which says that everyone had a mandatory duty to report when something happened, is that really good for the victim? or not mm-hmm. well in a way you kind of hijack that person's trauma and report when they're not even ready to report they may yeah. not be ready to report, mm-hmm. and you got manage to report but on the same on the same end of that that the statistics show that they're not reporting so what do you do so if they're not reporting and you don't have somebody else reports what's going on, how do you ever deal with it? Right. So if, 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 if the statistics on campus show that less than 9% of women report what has happened to them, then how do you help them? Right. So on one hand, it's not good because you hijack their story yeah. and report, but on the other hand, they don't report. So how do you deal with this issue on, cam- on campus? Yeah. If you report, you have mandatory. So now, you know, mandatory reporting. so if you ask administrators, they feel that it's working, that it is working because even if somebody else's report, that doesn't mean that uh, that you have to basically be the investigator of it. You just basically set them up and then they, at least at UT Austin, There's a process of dealing with how they're going to, if it's going to go through a true Title title IX, or I'm just going to refer you over where you do resources. A lot of time when they're reporting on campus, they're reporting because they need some type of accommodations. They need Mm -hmm. those resources to help them get through it. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm definitely supportive of all those behind the scenes that go into the work of not having to investigate, but the other people that 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 are helping our students deal with such a, such a traumatic issue. Yeah.
1: So So in, um, in your research, Yolanda, how many other campuses are you looking at or have you looked at and how many women are part of that research? And, and then I want to know what you've learned from the research so far.
0: Well, this is probably my, not well. You know what I'm going to say is not my na- naivety. I was going to say my naivety of not knowing really how research works. Mm-hmm. It, what's called a case study, and my case study was on you was on a predominantly white institution okay. that, um, and I was doing that for a reason. So I only wanted to look at 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 UT Austin, where where I went to school, because I knew that that was an area that there were not what I call disaggregating the data. Mm-hmm. When I say disaggregating the data, I mean, they didn't know who was coming in, what race or ethnicity they were. Sometimes they had it. If a person volunteered, they would know, but they didn't basically deal with it in any different way. It was just, it was the same way. Mm-hmm. I said, I want to do it on UT Austin. And I thought that I would find, because I was going to do a qualitative study. And in qualitative study, it's on studying the experiences. And so when you do qualitative study, you know you're gonna have a small, small sample size to start out with. You know you're not gonna get anything that's what they call generalizable studies or you can hold any type of generalizable findings to the entire population. So mm-hmm. don't want to adjust on that. So I've been trying to get, um, I'm not gonna say exactly how many, but I was trying to get enough of females at UT Austin To talk about their experiences Mm -hmm. would have been there for current students this is both undergrad graduate students or even if you had graduated or separated within the university within two years I really thought that they would be able that I would be able to get at least six people put it that way eight to ten people to talk to me about this and I will tell you it's been like pulling teeth to get people and what's interesting is I've found more participants by watching social media than I have just based on what we call snowballing, somebody else referring. I get a patient, they refer me to someone else. Because they say it's a private issue, but yet they don't consider sharing it on social media as not being private. Private, yeah. interesting. I'm like... And I think it's a, it's a generational thing Mm -hmm. that for some reason, if I share my study with the public, these people don't know me. So it's not really sharing my business. Right. But you're a little reluctant to talk to me. I mean, I had a person that I had found and that I was supposed to do a, a review an interview yesterday and and that person says, I don't, I can't do it. I just saw my abuser. And I'm getting off. Uh, I can't do it. And um, and I I, I I see that person sharing on social media. They're not sharing specifically, but they're sharing that I've been traumatized. Yeah. Like, I've been crying. She was like, I'm crying my I'm crying my eyes out. And she shows a picture of herself crying. What do
1: you think that's about? There's such a disconnect. Do you think there's that that there is a comfort level with just the device as opposed to a human being? There's there's more of a comfort level with not making eye contact and not having the human interaction and connection as opposed to just you, you being know, on the I think I
0: think there's something about there's something about sharing your study where millions of people can see it. I think. I think it is. I think it brings you comfort. It's like what they've done studies on Facebook, and you know how people how people um, react to the like button. Like if you get likes, right. you say, ooh, wow, oh. important, yeah. And so what happens is with Twitter, whatever it is, is that people validate your feelings, right? But they validate you. And like, there's a woman that's dying of cancer. She's on Twitter and she just wrote yesterday, hey, um, I'm in stage four. Uh, it's a matter of days and I'm gone.
1: Yeah.
0: And you're like, wait a minute, you're dying. Why are you, why? Are you,
1: why are you on social?
0: <laughs> why are you, why right. are you social mediaing that right. you're dying? And it's just, it's just, mm. it's just that. It's, it's like that, um, yeah, it's that juice. It's like yeah, it's that,
1: that, that the attention, attention that attention that people crave. Yeah, that people
0: crave. And I mm-hmm. think that her way is because what happens is that when you share your story, you do. People are like, "I'm so sorry that happened to you." Right. Your story gets believed. Like they right. in your story, they say, "Are you sure?" They're not questioning. And a lot of women that the reason they don't seek help is they don't think their story is going to believe. Right. They don't believe that they don't think you're going to believe their story. And if they, if if you don't literally say you don't believe it is how you are asking questions that make them believe that you don't believe them. Right. How are you asking the questions? Is it trauma informed? Are you questioning their story? Are you saying, well, man, you don't look like you just been sexual assaulted." Why are you laughing? Right. Shows that some women may lie. Some women forget. They don't tell it in a. You don't go and talk with the person that's been sexually assaulted and go through a chronological order. You don't try try to match that up. Right. A lot of police officers are trained to ask questions in that manner. Uh And they're looking for you to trip up. And they're looking to see if your story is believable. Right. Rather rather than
1: just believing it.
0: Instead of just saying, "I'm, I'm listening, just tell me what happened, please.
1: Right, right. You know, what you just said matches uh, some stats that I, I want to read from RAIN, um, which is Rape Abuse Incest National Network. Um, yes. It's the nation's largest um, anti sexual violence organization. And wow. they have stats about why women don't report. Um, they say a majority of, of sexual assaults are not reported to police. In fact, Two out of three go unreported. And here are some of the reasons. 20% fear retaliation, which is what you just mentioned. 13% believe the police would not do anything to help. 13% also believed it was a personal matter and it wasn't worth sharing. 8% reported to a different official rather than the police. Um, 8% believed it was not enough to report, uh, it was not important enough to report. 7% did not want to get the perpetrator in trouble, which is, which is what you talked hard. about. Mm-hmm. Yep. 2% believe the police would not do anything to help. And then 30% gave another reason or didn't cite a reason at all. So wow. it the, the stats are staggering. And, and to know that two out of three go unreported and these are some of the reasons why, It is astonishing to me. Yes. So I I want you to talk about why you think it's so difficult for a woman to report. Like what what is the thought process before they decide to report? But first, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll come back and talk about what it takes for a woman, whether it's a college student or just a woman in the world, why what it takes to, to report a sexual assault. We're going to take a quick break. You guys will be right back. Stay with us. Single socks are so annoying, aren't they? Especially when you're sure you put two socks together in the wash, only to find one of them has pieced out somewhere in between the washing and drying cycle. But your problems are now solved with Soulmate socks. They are magnetic socks that stay together in the laundry so you're never left with lost and single socks. Knitted from bamboo, they are the softest socks you'll have in your drawer. They're antifungal, antimicrobial, and they're breathable. So when you need your socks to stay together, grab a pair of Soulmate socks where every sock has a Soulmate. Shop online today at soulmatesox.com. That's S-O-L-E-M-A-T-E-S-O-X.com. Welcome back, you guys. Thanks for staying with us. We um, have been talking about stats around not reporting sexual assault and the reason. So my question now to Yolanda is what it takes for a woman to decide. And we've seen a lot of it happening uh, recently, Harvey, the women uh, who, who reported sexual assault against celebrities, Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, Jeffrey Epstein, and so many more. And then recently, uh, uh, one of the foremost communist leaders, um, a, a famous tennis player reported. And, and I'm sure it took a lot for her to report it, knowing of him and his status. And so people who have status use that as power. So women who know that and realize that and w- realize the power that these perpetrators have, what do you think it takes for a woman to actually make the decision to report it?
0: Well, of course, you, you mentioned the big word is um, um, that courageous. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, you, you have to be brave. You have to be encouraged. But I think to me, if I were in a situation like that and um, and and then my heart goes out to all of those that have been um, sexually assaulted, sexually abused as a child or whatever it may be, mm-hmm. um, my heart goes out to you. But I think that um, if that first person that they come in contact with if they got the support they needed, it's almost like that first responder. Yeah. The first responder. And I know since most of them, since most of them, according to the study that we did and according to my own research, seek help from family and friends um, and to somehow Oh, well, that's a real hard one because I can't put myself in their shoes. What would it take? Yeah. I would it's just be a great, great support system. A great support system that allows them to tell their story. Not you second guessing the story. Mm-hmm. Not you asking, what did you do? Um, why do you think this happened to you? Just allowing them to be them in that space. But one of the other things that your range study did not show, that the 2015 study that my office did, prevalence for for the state of Texas, was that in which my research is showing is they don't even realize it's a crime. They don't believe what's happening to them is actually sexual assault. Really? Like, oh, I didn't know that's what that was. Oh. Experience is not a crime. So if it ain't a crime, then where what, what, what am I? What am I reporting? Right. Wow,
1: that's so heartbreaking.
0: I mean, because they I feel mean, like you're going, yeah, hmm. if you don't even feel what has happened to you is wrong, then how do you report that that's right. Wrong? And so I know with my study, I had to, I was calling it, the first of my study was, the title of my study was "Race, Hidden or Missing, Understanding Black Women's Experience in the Fight Against Campus Sexual Assault. That was the title of my study. And that was because, based on the research, Black women were missing from the research. They, if, they wouldn't, if they weren't missing, they were, there was erasure happening because you didn't believe your story as to what was happening to them. Either they were bombarded and by these, what they call controlling images, the racialized stereotypes of Black women being incapable of being raped, which dates all the way back to slavery. That's another part of my story. That part, like unbelievable, like, oh, you know what? It didn't even dawn on me that what happened during slavery where black women were raped continuously Mm. by white men. And at the same time, their white wives were watching them do it and knew that they did it. Mm Nothing, and, and that Black women had no recourse as it relates to these issues. And that part continues to haunt them today. Mm. I would ask my participants about are you aware of these stereotypes of being called a Jezebel, a sapphire, all of these controlling images of power and control that you're hypersexual, that you wanted? The way you dress, you want this. The way rappers may refer to them mm-hmm. may refer to them do refer to them mm-hmm. in terms that are derogatory and demeaning, and if this is who you think our black women are
1: mm-hmm.
0: how do you, how do you how do you have how do you have the 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 power the courageousness that needed to report if you don't even realize what's happening to you is wrong thats that's not who you are you're better than that. and so there's a lot that goes into not just waiting till they're in college, but what are we teaching our black women, black men or women in general about who they are
1: Mm -hmm.
0: as women and their Mm -hmm. position and how not to be controlled because that's what all, that's what, that's what sexual assault is about. Power and control. If I can, if I can overpower you, you won't think that what's happened to you is wrong. This is the way you, you should be treated. Yeah. I mean, I had a situation, say, I don't think I fit your study because he didn't he didn't sexually assault me. He just beat he just beat me up. Oh my God. And I was like, As if that's better. And I was like, but that's dating violence. Right. If I if if that was a person, if that other person you're talking about is a student at UT. That person would come under Title IX. Right. Sorry. Gender violence. Right. It's traumatizing. It's still, it still could impact your studies. That's what it is, is that the reason why you study these issues is because they are barriers just to our students succeeding. Right. In school. They, they right. have to be in settings where they can learn. That's a, that's a hostile learning environment. To be in a traumatized situation like that. And then, you know, how do the thing is, it's one thing to report, say it is reported, but to take you through months and months and months and months of investigating your case or months and months of going through a trial or, or months and months of a prosecutor deciding, well, I think I do have enough evidence. Nope, I don't have enough evidence. report to to move forward with this Mm -hmm. so many cases that are reported but they do not go through the prosecutorial process they do not get pushed forward because they either feel they don't have enough evidence or the person could say you know what i've decided i don't i don't want to i don't want to press charges against him or her and this is just not a male female i know we're talking about female. this happens this happens the other way around this right clearly in the gay community this is they they are definitely a marginalized population that is not studied uh along with people that are disabled you would think that this would not happen to someone that's disabled it does right
1: so it's not gender exclusive at all it is not
0: at all right no it's not and so um Yeah, I thought that was when I say they don't realize what happened to them is a crime.
1: Wow. And that is so heartbreaking because if, so how many, how many can you, can you even estimate how many victims does this happen to that don't realize it's in fact a a crime? I mean, is there a way to even, to even. I don't
0: don't think you can. Culminate it. On it, Um, but I do know. That in their study, um, when I say their study, I mean IDVS's study. they like I said when I started out. They were saying that what seventy—that's seventy-six point eight percent—that actually seek help from friends and family, but only nine percent seek help from law enforcement. I was trying to see what the what the uh, the other number was as it relates to this in terms of just not reporting at all, which is mm-hmm. unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's just it's a it's a complex vaccine issue on college campuses, like my research say. Um, they are trying to put their hands around it in terms of prevention efforts. How do we write about this right? before it right. even happens. Right. Um, there are there is mandatory training that students must take, even I think they have to take that video even before coming onto campus, all of them taking, it, but it's interesting when I asked them about, hey, uh, were you aware of policies, were you aware of programs? And I'm like, no, I didn't know anything about that. And I don't know if they're not what really watching when they get it. But you know, but when you're coming in, you're a freshman, you're, you got so many different things going on right. and then you to watch a video you watch a video and then what you say to yourself oh this is not going to happen to me right this is never going to happen to me right. I'm never going to be this stupid right um, then you take in a little alcohol there's some alcohol involved I know my research is but black women don't have as much alcohol issues but when I was asking my participants they were like Black women drink just like anybody else drinks. Right. Uh, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think maybe they just don't get to a point where they don't know what they're doing mm-hmm. to it. But mm-hmm. it is a very uh, complex issue, and how do we, how do, how do we get them to report? I think to me, they have to be in supportive and welcoming environment. Mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. And, they, and I think the other thing is, is that they have to feel good about themselves. Yeah. If you feel good about you, when something, something bad happens to you, I think you want to, you like, this is not right. And I, but I tell you the number one thing that I've heard is that when I've told participants that your story is going to help someone else for this not to happen to someone else, they're like, "Oh, okay. I want to participate in that. You, this this study is going to help someone else. Yes, it's going to basically your story is going to help someone else. Yeah. And if we can get the word out as it relates to it, because I know none of them are asking for it. Um, it's not as the word suggests. Like if I think of sexual assault, I would like, oh, that person had to, that person had to rape me." And it's not, it may not be rape in a sense of violent rape, violent like a violent taking of of sexual intercourse. It could be groping. It could be harassing you. It could be stalking you. It could be, anytime you say no, it's no. Like I said, Mm -hmm. it's it's no. Even if the person, I mean, I had a case where a person agreed and in the middle of it said, I don't want to do it anymore. And the person says, wait a minute. She, she, she can it. I say, but once she says no, it's not right. And right. I know that may not feel right to you, the person that's doing it, but that's, that's the way it works. Right. And so, um, it, we have a long way to go. I, I know we got, I'm really, truly am. Um, I don't want to call it enjoying, um, I, I just think I, I, I like the fact that I'm making a difference yeah. in, uh, being helped, being able to help survivors, uh, to get the help that they need and more importantly, the help they need to heal right on with their life. Right. Some of them don't report just so you know, it also statistics show they don't report because they want to go on with their lives. So they bury it. Yeah.
1: They, they just compartmentalize. Happen. Yeah, yeah. And just go on. Happen. Which is just as bad because I think so. There are too. triggers, right? There are triggers later on in life. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about prevention because obviously perpetrators don't suddenly become perpetrators once they go to college or once they become adults. And what I constantly think about is this notion. That has been with us in this patriarchal society for generations is this term, and it's not just a term; it's the idea that boys will be boys. But I, you know, obviously, it doesn't relate to just boys. It is, it is, people who believe that sexual assault is okay and all the things that fall under that category that you just mentioned. And so, I want to talk about how we can sort of turn the tides when. People are three years old, four years old, five years old, teaching them how to treat people better. One of the things that my daughter and I talk about, she's 14 in ninth grade, but in middle school, her counselors are fantastic in middle school. And they talk to the children about this is what an unhealthy relationship looks like. And this is how you not only conduct your sales, but this is what you should expect in a healthy relationship. And if any of these things happen outside of that, then these are the resources that you have. But I don't think there is enough of that happening in schools and enough happening in the household, teaching girls, boys, whatever the gender is, how to not be a perpetrator, how to not sexually assault somebody. And, uh, and then, you you know, you get to adulthood and you have all these cases, two and three, you know, going to go unreported. Like, why are these stats so high? So I would love for you to talk about prevention, not just from the perspective of in college, but before people get to college, because I think I realized my children understood what I was saying to them when they were 18 months old. <laughs> so that told me that they could comprehend certain concepts and they can comprehend when no is appropriate. Mm-hmm. So talk about pre- prevention from early on in, in a person's life. I,
0: you know, I think you hit it on the, the head about teaching about what's a healthy relationship and what's not. Um, also to me, just a big one is just respect. with mm-hmm. <laughs> respect. Um, I know I have a son that's in college. And um, I, I, I got a call from actually the girlfriend that was saying um, that he was being disrespectful and that uh, the first thing I asked, like, has he put his hands on you? What, you know, anything like that? And she's like, no, he, he threw my purse down or something like that. And, and the thing I said was, you guys are not in a healthy relationship. Mm-hmm. Normalize the fact like well you know I get mad at him and I yell he gets mad at me and he yells and if you're doing that 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 much yelling put it this way if it got to a point where you think you needed to call me mm-hmm. and you are basically what twenty three have have graduated from college and you're calling me then that's not a healthy relationship i so I think we just need to first of all which i think mothers do, or parents do, about putting your hands on someone. Mm-hmm. You've heard a thing, don't put your hands, that's not nice for you to put your hands on individuals. Um, and I think that normalizing that behavior to say when a boy does certain things or a boy has, say, a boy has several girlfriends and, and are not being respectful to all of them. And it says, oh, he's just being a boy. hmm that's not the language that we want to use. We want to start that, that relationship relationship. We're teaching our children the basic values of respect, right? Honesty, being honest, having those values of care and love. And I think if you have those, just those traditional concepts and values that each of us teach, treat 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 you know treat someone as you would like to treat yourself that those things go a long way in dealing with these issues around Mm -hmm. assault. Because if assault is around power and control, you don't control and have power on someone that you love, Mm -hmm. that you care about, or that you respect. Those things don't add up. And and I'm not sure how, how that part, when you say, I do love a person, how does that get twisted? We're doing and, and, and behaving the way that this happened, that you feel that you have to beat up on a person, you got to take something mm-hmm. to make them feel less than you. In order for you to feel big yourself or in order for you to feel like the man, I guess you say, in order for you to feel like the man, you have to hit on a woman, slap on a woman, uh, talk loud, demeaning, derogatory call them, call them out of their names. And that is about making you feel less than, or making you have less self-esteem about yourself that you can't, you, you can't get out of the situation because the first thing it says is like, who's going to want you? go, mm-hmm. you know, who, who, who else wants you? Mm-hmm. And they make you, and they make you feel bad about yourself. And you start internalizing that, that where you have no sense of anything about yourself. You right. don't feel beautiful. And so if we can start teaching our children about how beautiful they are, about how strong, you know, I don't I don't want to say strong because that black, strong woman thing has gotten us in trouble. <laughs> We're strong that we can't be, we can take pain, that we yeah. take this. And so I'm very reluctant on using being strong anymore. Yeah, I get it. That it can work against you. Um, but I think self-care, I mean, I think all of those things are are important being grounded. And from my own Christian faith, um, I know that what love feels like. And I know love is not beating up on someone. Love is not disrespecting someone. Mm-hmm. Love not telling them that they are a bitch or a whore. That that's not what love is. And if you gotta make yourself feel good by making others feel less, that's that's not what we need. That's mm-hmm. not boy. That's not to me a boy. That is not how I would teach my boys to be boys. Right. I've never ever. I have two boys myself, yep. and I've never ever. I've always talked about respecting young women. And I remember Langston. And he went on his first little date to the prom, the mother called me. I, was, I had moved away. And he was gone. She's like, oh, he opened the door for her. And she thought that was the biggest thing that he came around to open the door for her. And I was like, really? You're like, uh... That's the, that's the bare minimum. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm that's like, not the And maximum. she was like, and then she was like, and he bought her cassage or flower. And I was like, uh, I think those are all the things that you're supposed to do. Right. And he treats you. And so you can, you know, that old saying where watch how, watch how a man treats his mother. Yes. Watch how he treats his mother. And yes, know how he'll treat you. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I just appreciate you talking about this. Yes. Issues around um, sexual assault, sexual violence, sexual abuse are some of the same issues around just women feeling um, bold and courageous and beautiful. And if we can feel that, I just think that we can, um, and surround. And to me, the other one is surround yourself with people that love you. Yeah. Um, and to tell you that it's not right. And a lot of the women that did not realize what happened to them was wrong was like this is not right. It was other women in their spaces that they finally told that says that's not right. And then when they start telling a similar story, like well that happened to me. And then it then it start clicking. Mm. Oh, it happened to you too? Yes, it did happen. Mm. It happened to me. Mm-hmm. They can get out of that. I'm just going to hold this all in. Yeah. Just think, I don't think it's good. I think that there's a reason why you have friends. There's a reason why you have family. There's a reason why you have people that you love. And for them to be that other voice in your head that helps you recognize Things that you may not know that's going on yourself, and so. Right.
1: Well, as we um, come to an end, I'd love for you to give a few tips of advice to someone who is needs to report something and is afraid to do so.
0: One, I think, is know that there is help. There is help. And I know you had talked about resources. Um, there is, you know, anyone can Google it. You know, the the National um, Rape Crisis Center. Although, you know, what I had one of the studies showed that that women don't go reporting there, which is interesting. That they said that they don't report to the crisis lines. Why specifically to the? To- the crisis line itself. Well, when it, when it looked at the when it looked at the research, that was like, who, where do they go for help? Mm-hmm. That was one of the ones that were they had. This is for taxes, right? This is a report that was done by IDBSA, and the crisis hotline only had one point six percent of the participants in that study. They were the last that people would go to. Wow based on family, friends, intimate partners, social workers, law enforcement, medical care, sexual assault. And that may be because that, you know, talking on the phone to someone may not be personal enough. Right. You, you actually need someone that you can see, touch, feel. Uh, but I do know that those crisis hotlines do good work. And so I'm just saying there is help and just realize you're not alone. Right. You're not alone and do not try to deal with this on your own. To me, that's the worst thing you can do. Mm-hmm. Hold all this in because it will just eat at you and eat at you and eat at you. And you will not get the help that you can get. Yeah. I think the two, if like if you're on a college campus, never go anywhere by yourself mm-hmm. except to a party. Schedule it ahead of time that you have another partner with you, another person, which is could be your bystander, your person that will pull you away when they see things not happening the way that you have to always have that person. Third would be, be okay with you, um, be okay with you, that you, that you are good enough, um, one of the things when I was thinking about when I said my greatest fear of not succeeding, along that same line was the fear of, am I good enough? Mm, good enough for wherever I'm at. And I think that I'm not trying to go into a self-blame that women that happen, this happened to them or women who have low self-esteem. I'm not saying that. I am not saying that at all. But I think that when you look at the whole process of power and control and how someone gets power over you and how they control you is that they, they, they are able to do that because they get you to feel not good about yourself Mm -hmm. that you feel you can't get out, that you are ugly, that you are all the derogatory things that they say that you've internalized, they get you to feeling that way. And so make sure that you practice self-care it's okay to be a little selfish every once in a while about you. It's so I'm being selfish, selfish with you. Yes. For yourself. Um, if you need to journal, have spaces. I, I've learned to center every morning and I center because what I do is allow God's energy or someone's inspiration to pierce into my head so whenever I may open an email, whenever I may see a text, if those things are negative, I'm in the right mindset to respond. So it's allowing my, it's allowing me to be over control of what it is. It's like serenity. Yeah. grace me with serenity. Yeah. To control, to accept the things I cannot change. To be brave enough to control the things I can. hmm discernment to know the difference between the two Mm -hmm. ever in this world. I, I, that I would live within this world, not as you know, you would have it but God. So those are the things that I practice about serenity and having that inner peace within yourself. So you don't fall into someone's prey. That's for someone, because if you're being vulnerable during that time, there's something they they go after people who are not strong or they are yep. not strong that they feel are weak that can they can take advantage of mm-hmm. and so that's why I think self-care is so important and being aware of who you are yep around it and so I think those things of you're not in it alone seek help you're not in it alone um understanding uh oh, on centering i think i said that journaling mm-hmm. yes and knowing your boundaries mm-hmm. setting boundaries mm-hmm. uh, and, as sticking to and sticking yep. to those boundaries yep. i think it's important uh when you're going into into a, a relationship to understand that what are your boundaries and when someone crossed them being brave enough to say that that wasn't right right like it the way I did not like it when this when you did this to me. Right. And I think those are important. Yeah, to anyone that's victimized, whether it's a woman, a man, um, someone who's transgender, uh, anyone that may any gender, yeah, yeah, a any gender, any
1: person, yeah,
0: any person.
1: Well, this has been so amazing and so insightful and so in-depth. I thank you for not only your time, but the work that you're doing and the work that you're doing to help survivors heal from the traumatic and horrible experience that they endured in their life. And so I thank you for your work.
0: Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I know, Katina, breathe. Yes, learn how to breathe. If you yeah, know, you can get through a whole lot of things. It, it breathing just produces so much patience that is needed.
1: Mm. So
0: I'm going to leave with breathing. Yes, I love that. Do you know love the four that. corner breathing? Have you heard of four corner breathing?
1: I haven't. I need it because I move so fast that I don't
0: take enough time to stop okay. and breathe. We're going <laughs> to so end this session with a breathing. Okay. okay. The four corner breathing. I can do wave breathing, but I've learned this in my mindfulness. Gidi, I'm going to give you a shout out. But anyway, it's breathe in for four, hold it for four, and let it out for four. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Breathe in for four. So I go. Deep diaphragm breathe. You know what the deep Body, di- let's
1: take a minute and do it right now. Everybody
0: listening, okay. let's do it. Deep, okay, deep diaphragm breathing that is when the stomach goes out mm-hmm. for four one, two, three, four. Release for four, one, two, three, four. And you do like four of those, and it just calms you down so much. And then you can actually get to a point where you can actually feel the breath yeah moving through your body and when you can be that in tune where you're so in the present that you can feel that movement within your breath you got it
1: yeah i love it
0: i would say do it for five minutes
1: yes i already feel better (laughs) thank you so much um I do want to give a hotline if there are those out there who do feel like they um, are ready and can speak to somebody Um, rain has a national sexual assault hotline which is 1-800-656-HOPE H-O-P-E thank you so much for listening today we've been talking to Yolanda McCarty Harris she is a director of mission critical initiatives at the institute for domestic violence and sexual assault at the steve hicks school of social work at the university of texas at austin thank you so much for listening today have a great day everybody and begin your day continue through your day saying Fuck fear thank you for listening we will see you next time coming up on a new episode of Fuck
0: fear so that fear in me is so huge because it's just like oh my goodness i'm gonna fail again I'm going to, I'm going to plan this out from A to Z, but I know something's going to mess up.
1: Is there something you haven't done because you were afraid to fail? On the next episode, I'm so excited to welcome a very special guest, my sister, she's the younger one. I'm the prettier one. No, I was just kidding. <laughs> she comes on the podcast to talk about something she's in the midst of right now, which is fear of failure, which is something I think as entrepreneurs, as professionals, as humans, we all face. So we're gonna talk about it on the next episode and think about things that you decided not to do because you were afraid to fail. But what I think about failure now is that failure is not final. So be sure to join us to find out ways that she gets over her fear of failure. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. If you feel led, I'd love for you to write a review. Check out other episodes.